Well, one thing that's important to remember is that what Mallory just read a few minutes ago is not a metaphor. It's not a story. It's not a parable. It's not a teaching tool. But it's a biography, right? This is a story of a real man's life, a young man, Hosea, and a young woman, Gomer. And they had real biographies, real plot lines to their lives. They had kids together. And a couple of weeks ago, we, we looked at the very beginning of this book. And Hosea tells us that God, he's a, Hosea is a prophet. God came to him one day and he says, not Hosea, go and say, but Hosea, go and live, go and do. And God gives Hosea a script to live by. And it is not some arbitrary random script like go act this out. But what God hands Hosea is God's script. And he says to his prophet, I want you to walk a mile in my shoes, as it were. And through Hosea, since he wrote this down and we're talking about it tonight, God wants us to walk a mile in his shoes to understand the other side of the relationship, his side of the relationship. And to do that, it's important to remember these are real people with real lives, which means this. Hosea had a pre-Gomer part of his life. He had a, a long life before he heard this from God and went out and tracked Gomer down and married her. But he kind of knew what he was getting into. God put his cards on the table right up front. He said, Hosea, go and marry a woman of promiscuity. That inner thing we were talking about, that inner bent. If God is the north end of the magnet, that promiscuity is the south end of the magnet. Every time you come closer, it just veers away. And he says, go and marry Gomer, a woman of promiscuity, a promiscuous woman. And he goes and he marries her. Now, here's where I gotta, we got to be careful. Don't think that Hosea is just robotically, mechanically kind of going and doing what God tells him. The way your parents might have told you, like in, you know, elementary school or middle school, you know, Timmy has a hard time making friends, so I want you to be extra nice to Timmy during recess. Can you please eat your lunch with him or something? You're like, okay, mom, I'll be nice to Timmy. And it's forced and arm twisted and you do what you need to do. There's a temptation to see Hosea just kind of like blindly following whatever God's told him to do. But God didn't, there was not a lot of specificity in this command, Right? And Hosea, there's a ton that Hosea did not know. It's a, it's a little bit of an ominous call. Go and marry a, a woman who's filled with promiscuity or waywardness, a flirtatious woman. You can begin to imagine how that's going to go. But he didn't have all those details that we know now. And so he goes and marries her. And there are wedding invitations that go out. And there are engagement photos up on social media. And Hosea and Gomer have a wedding week and they have a wedding day and the family is there and it's a Middle Eastern wedding. And so it's a long drawn out affair and there's dancing and drinking and celebrating and joy. And there's a honeymoon. And it was probably a pretty good honeymoon. And there was a honeymoon season of their marriage where there were young newlyweds enjoying being married. And that's Hosea. And this fiance who becomes his wife, Gomer. So honeymoon season begins to wear off. And it's not just Hosea that starts to notice at like cocktail parties or when they have friends over for dinner that his wife seems a little bit more engaged and sharp edged when she's around other men. But other people in the neighborhood start to see it too, right? 
ladies are always more intuitive than us guys. And so the ladies went home to their husbands and said, did you see how Gomer was looking at Bill? She's totally into him. And the guy's like, I didn't see that. Really? And over time, more and more people notice it. Hosea notices it. And he's starting to add this up in his head. And he's like, we're, we're like becoming roommates. And the pain of that begins to sink in that why does my wife come alive around all these other people? But there's nothing for us to talk about at home. There's nothing for us to do. She's just shut down. Time goes by and that inner promiscuity that that God had tipped his hat at begins to come out. It's manifesting. It expresses itself as she follows through on those thrills and desires and begins to sleep around. And it gets so bad over such a prolonged period of time that one of the guys she sleeps with isn't so innocent. And he captures her and he traffics her. Because in Hosea chapter 3, where the story picks up is God telling Hosea again, go again, Hosea, and love a woman who is loved by another man and who is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. And then he says in verse 2, or Hosea says, okay, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, not much money, but it was the price of what a slave cost in those days. So where the story picks up is Hosea, this man who's already been publicly shamed. He's been embarrassed in front of his friends. He's been embarrassed in front of everybody. And a lot of people said, I told you so. I could have told you it was going to happen the day you said, will you marry me? Everybody knew Gomer was like this. Why didn't you see it? Well, now Gomer or now Hosea is walking into an auction house of a slave trading operation and he is bidding on his wife. And I want to remind you again, a wife he loves. Not a wife that God said robotically, go back and pay some money and get her back. God never said, buy her back. He said, go and love her. And because what loving Gomer looks like in that situation, Hosea scrounges up money to do the unthinkable. Who would want that Woman, that wife in that situation, she is on a block like a cow at an auction and people are raising up their hands. And Hosea makes the highest bid. And that's how he gets his wife back. This is a man's life and this is a woman's life and this is their experience. And this is what is going on. It's not a metaphor. It's not a story. It's not a teaching tool. It's a biography. And God says in verse 3, sorry, in the the second part of verse 1, he says, Hosea, do this, go again, go again and love again, pursue again this woman who is loved by another man, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they, like Gomer, turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And you're like, what's up with the raisin cakes? has a prominent featuring role in this story. Is it really that much of a delicacy? In that day, it was. uh, Raisin cakes, believe it or not, were kind of a cultic food. It was the food that went along with the cultic 
uh, worship services. So if you're worshiping Baal or Baal and you're going to the temple, there was cultic sex that would happen with that. He's the God of fertility. There was feasting that would happen with that. And the raisin cakes are almost like a, a, a joke, almost how pitiful her condition had become or Israel's condition had become. Their life has been reduced from being in a marriage with the living, the true and living God to really all I want before I go to bed is another raisin cake. That'd be awesome. You're like, how, how did your life devolve to this point? It's like the C.S. Lewis quote. We, we've been offered a vacation at the beach and we settled for playing in mud in the, in the slums. That's what that line is intended to be in there. Her life has become about English muffins. You're like, you're a human being. You were married to God. How does this happen? Well, this is the story Not just of Hosea and Gomer, but God says here, it's the story of me and my people too. And this story, if you zoom way out and look at it, and this should be obvious to you at this point, if you've ever read this before, or you've been here in the past few weeks, is that God wants you to think about marriage when you think about you and God. When you think about your relationship with God, when we as a people corporately think about our relationship with God, the God who's revealed in the Bible, He wants your mind first to go to a marriage, husband and wife, wife and husband. And this is kind of different than how we typically think of us and God, especially at an individual level, me and God. We tend to think of them. We've talked about this even last week in a transactional kind of a way. One effect that sin has on us is it makes us transactional creatures. That was last week. But it's not just that sin has that effect on our heart. Culture does, too. We're in a particularly transactional culture. Think about the ways you hear the the Christianity talked about or the gospel talked about or the way you might think about your relationship with God. We have these metaphors. Hang with me. I've got another thing to say about them, but hear this. Here's how we typically talk about it and think about it. We have metaphors like your debts being canceled or courtroom settings of charges being forgiven of you or accounts being settled. Or maybe you think about it like, I'm going to do this for God, and then he's going to do this for me. Maybe you think about it in a formulaic way. Do these four things. Read your Bible, pray, love people, come to church. And then God will do this. Maybe it was purely transactional. You're raised with prosperity gospel. If you do these things, everything will work for you. You won't have to suffer. Life will just unroll like a red carpet in front of you. All of that stuff is business terms. All of that is transactional. All of that has more a flavor of an arm's length business contract. And God does not want your mind going there first. Okay? There is a shred of truth in all of those things. Right? There is a shred of truth in charges being forgiven, in accounts being settled, in debts being canceled. There's even a shred of truth in the prosperity gospel. Is there prosperity and life abundantly in Jesus? Yes. But it is not the whole truth and it is not what God, it's not the major dominant image that God wants to be in your head. When you think about what a relationship with him is like, he wants marriage to be in your head. Hosea is not just the only place where this is talked about. It's present in Deuteronomy. It's present in Exodus. It's present in Song of Psalms and the Psalms. It's present in Ezekiel. It's present in Hosea, the other minor prophets all throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 5, Colossians. Everywhere, marriage is held up. 
Which raises a question, do you, is that where your mind immediately goes when your mind drifts to anything about God or you and God or your relationship with God? Or if you're not a Christian and you're here kind of curious, have you ever heard him talked about this way? What he's offering you is not a transaction or a business deal. You say this and I'll give you this. He is calling you into a marriage. This is really important. Uh, the reason that this is important and that we get this and the reason it's, it's littered from Genesis to Revelation is because it completely reframes and gives you a whole new perspective for your relationship with God and how he relates to us. There's a lot of things in the Bible that will not make sense to you unless this is the lens through which you're looking. God's jealousy will not make sense to you unless you realize you are married to him and what he has invited you into as a marriage. You'll be like, is this not overkill? Are you kind of like... Why is he jealous? Isn't that a bad thing? He's jealous because you are his. He has made you. He has bought you. He has redeemed you. He has made vows to you. He has committed himself to you eternally. He is yours and you are his. Of course he's jealous. Of course he won't share us with other lovers. The ferocity of of his love. I mean, there are some graphic examples in the Old Testament and the New of how God loves you, how deeply, fiercely, passionately. He loves his church, his people. That will not make sense to you. If you see this as a, as a, as a, as a primarily a courtroom thing or a banker's office thing or a contract thing, and God wants that to feature prominently in your mind, his absolute demands, things like Romans 12 will not make sense to you. That your spiritual act of worship is offering all of yourself, all of your life, all 24 of your hours, all of your intellect, all of your sexuality, all of your vocational life, all of your relationships to him. That will seem like dramatic overkill. Like I need boundaries. Can we put up a few walls here to kind of compartmentalize my life? Well, it makes sense if he's married to you. Because in a marriage, one person is saying to the other, you have all of me and I have all of you. No demand is outrageous in marriage because you are one, right? You are one flesh. You are on the same team. You are for each other. You are on the same side. All of these things will not make sense unless you think about you and God the way God thinks about you and him. And so if if the only thing that you do, quote unquote, with tonight's sermon is start wrestling with this and reimagining what your relationship with him is like and why he treats you the way he treats you, how he treats you, then that's a big win. When God marries us, he takes responsibility for you. That's what happens in a marriage, too. You say, I will take responsibility for this person, my lover, my wife, my husband. Your debts become my debts. Your liabilities become mine. Your weaknesses become mine too. I enter into those with you. Your joys become my joys. Your cares become my cares. Your anxieties become my concerns. Things that keep you up at night begin to increasingly keep me up at night. It's a complete tethering of two people, an interweaving of two people. That's what a marriage is. And when God marries us, he takes all of what is ours and makes it his. And he gives all of what he is and who he is, and he makes it ours. 
It is not an overstatement to say that you are saved by marriage. If you want to know what Christianity is about and how it's distinct among other approaches, other religious systems in the world, you will not find this anywhere else. That the way God redeems his people and changes you and makes you a good person again who loves good things and hates bad things is by marrying you. We are saved by marriage, but oh, is it a messy marriage? I've been curious what you thought about this language that God keeps using, calling his people adulterers or, depending on your translation, whores. Some of you have gone out and bought different translations of the Bibles to temper this a little bit. It's unsettling. But his cards are on the table. And he's brutally honest with his people. And he says, our idolatry, our running around, our flirtatious eye, our wandering heart, our forwardness with other lovers, our dissatisfaction with him is best described with that grating word. It's a messy marriage. Just in the first verse, four times the word love appears. And it is very mixed usages of that word. Look back down. And the Lord said to me, Hosea, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods because they love them. See that mixed bag? It's messy. There's a lot of talk about love, but one side of the relationship has no clue what they're talking about when they say, I love you, right? This, this wife has all these other things saying, I love you to her, and she's saying, I love you to it. And it begins to diminish your sense that she really knows what she means when she says, I love you. And it begins to raise the idea in our head, do I really know what I mean when I say to God, I love you? And you have this, uh, these people pursuing these other loves because they love them. This other man who loves the adulteress. And then he talks about Hosea going and loving Gomer as the Lord loves his people. And that's a whole other kind of love altogether, right? But we can get this all flip-flopped. And, and we, when we say, I love you, God, we think we mean it in the deepest way possible. And when he says, I love you, Ben, or you, we get all confused. And we think he means it in the same fickle, flippant cursory way that we mean it when we say it to people is it a temporary thing is it i love you and tomorrow i love you not is it i love you when you do whatever is it i love you now i love you the way you are but maybe not the way you're becoming see how we do this we mistake what his love towards us is and we mistake what our love towards him is and it's this this giant just melting pot of some amazing stuff and some really ugly stuff all mixed in together of God's redemptive love for his people, his patient covenantal love for his people and our all over the map kind of love for him mixed in with a lot of love for other things as well. We may be indeed married to God. If you're a Christian, you are married to God, but there is still a wandering eye and a flirtatious heart somewhere inside of us. And we, unlike him, are more on-again, off-again lovers. How is this possible? You've heard of the term Stockholm Syndrome, probably, right? The the term came from an actual bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden in the early 70s. These robbers robbed this bank and locked four hostages in a bank vault for a week. 
And those are the only people they had interaction with. Their captors and the hostages. The police were trying to get in. There was no way to get in. After a week, they're able to release the hostages. But in the months that happened, in the years after that, as they start to prosecute these bank robbers and sentence them, the, captor, the captives won't come and testify against them. And they, they actually go to press conferences and they defend the bank robbers. And they bonded in that moment somehow. It was a familiar shared experience for them. And it, was, it became this weird us, hostages and captors, against them, police, rescuers and authorities. That's hopefully never happened to any of you, but we understand a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome. Have you ever been in just a, what you knew in your mind was a bad relationship, a toxic relationship, but it lingered in your head? And in lonely times, Christmas break, there's no one to hang out with back home. In a moment of weakness, you start calling, you start texting, you start looking through old pictures again. It's something that at the time you knew you didn't want to be a part of. You wanted to leave it. You didn't want it. Give it a few weeks. Give it a few months. And there's that lingering affection or love or curiosity or thrill that goes back. This is the Jews in the wilderness. You remember what they said? God had just delivered them out of 400 years of slavery. America hasn't been around 400 years. 400 years of slavery in Egypt under the oppression and the tyranny and the injustice of Pharaoh. And by week two or three, after being delivered out of that in a miraculous way, the Israelites are saying, but we had celery and carrots in Egypt. And all we have is this lousy manna in the wilderness. They wanted to go back. They told Moses, take us back to captivity. If you've seen the movie Shawshank Redemption, Brooks, who was released after a lifetime in prison, has no idea how to live on the outside and ends up taking his life. He prefers. There's this dark preference for and attraction to the familiarity and the comfort of a life that we know well, even if it was a life that's no life at all, that takes it from us. He doesn't know what to do with freedom. He doesn't know what to do with liberty with restoration, with renewal, with a second chance. And so he walks into the captivity of suicide. This is us when we prefer illusions of God. Again, we talked about that last week in in Hosea too, but we have God and we fall in love with illusions of God, with shadows of God, when we have the substance of God. It's like my daughter falling in love with my shadow and caring nothing for me. And she misses out on all that is me, which some of y'all are thinking she ain't missing out on much, but I'm better than a shadow at least. And we fall in love with these silhouettes, these divine silhouettes of control or comfort or sex or food or rest. Beautiful things that God made, but are not God and are not redemptive. We prefer that captivity. We always think they're going to give us a little bit more of a handle on life, restore control. All they do is make us lose control. We spiral out of control and we are controlled by those things. Gomer prefers hookups to a husband who actually loves her. That's how this happens. There is still that residual, even with a new heart, even with a new marriage to God, even being redeemed. There is still that stuff in you that is magnetically attracted 
to that stuff out there that actually is poison. So what is God going to do about this? How does he go about changing that dynamic? How does he get Stockholm syndrome out of you? Well, in one sense, I mean, it's almost a play on words. He captivates you. He captures you in marriage. He captures you in his love. And it is an inescapable love. It is a covenant that that cannot be revoked. And it is a love that is relentless and will not turn back. And so in some weird way, if we tend to love captors, well, what if love becomes your captor? And you can't run away anymore this time. Or when you do, it goes with you. What God does is what we've been saying. He marries us and it is inside of marriage that you change. It is inside of this covenantal marriage to God that he transforms you. It's inside of that. And it's always inside of a marriage that you will most change. Either for those of you who are going to be single or called to singleness later in life, Your marriage to Jesus is the place that you will be transformed the most. For those of you that for a temporary time here on earth will be married to another guy, another girl. Of all your human relationships, that's the one you will be transformed in. That's the one that will change you. Why? Because that's the one, ideally, where there is the safety and the security of being able to slowly, patiently Tiny step by tiny step, work through your issues. Work through that Stockholm syndrome. Work through that magnetic repulsion to good things and beautiful things. To be called on your junk by someone who loves you, even when they're frustrated with you. To have things patiently pointed out to you. To realize for the first time in your life how you actually affect other people who can't move out the next year but are with you forever. It is a transformative place primarily because it's a permanent place. You let your guard down. The real you comes out. Look, dating is great. I know even those of you who have the best dating relationship ever, there is still insecurity in it. There are still cards you won't and can't talk about with your boyfriend or your girlfriend because you're afraid they will leave you if they see it. Or you've got doubts and suspicions and you can't talk about them because you're afraid of the effect it'll have on them. But guess what? Marriage is an incubator for transparency and honesty and finally putting those cards on the table and saying, I know you won't leave me. I know you love me. I don't know why this is in my heart or in my head, but it's true and I need help. God marries you. He secures the relationship. He commits. He is all in. He locks the doors. And he says, we're going through this stuff, not around it. And you're going to be different on the other side of it. That's the effect of a marriage. Tim Keller has a a marriage book, Meaning of Marriage. We mention it every now and then, but there's a chapter on it called The Mission of Marriage. And he says that what you're really looking for in a spouse is someone who is able to see future you. They have some kind of a sense of who you are in Christ, who God is making you into, who he's restoring you to. It's almost a sense of what you'll be like in heaven when there is no more temptation, no more weakness, no more sin, no more vandalism of all the good stuff in you. They have a glimpse of that and they've fallen in love with that person. They're like, I can't wait to see Anna become this person or Ben become this person. 
I know, I know they're nowhere close now. I only get glimpses of it momentarily. But that is amazing. And he says, you look for a person that sees that in you. And you look for a person where you see that in them. You have to see the future self. God sees future you when he marries you. Hear me out. I don't mean that he kind of, because he's omniscient, can tell who you're going to become. And he's like, Mark is going to be a really cool guy in seven years. I'd like to, let's get married. What What he says is, I am making him into an amazing, magnificent, marvelous image of Jesus himself. It is not the prerequisite to marriage. It is the result of marriage to him. Future you changes when Jesus marries you and he makes you into himself. C.S. Lewis says this. We have it on the board so you can follow with me. If we let him, God will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a God or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom. Hey, do y'all mind pulling that up? Okay, it's not there. Then I'll read it to you slowly. We'll put it up after with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine a bright stainless mirror, which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts it'll be very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. Lewis is capturing this, too. He says, do you realize what you're in? Do you realize what you got yourself into? Do you realize what God got you into? Is a marriage with him inside of which he will begin to put you back together again. And you will be beautiful. And he is intent on it. And he is relentless in pursuing that goal. I want to end with this as we look at this this passage. Uh, By the way, where do we see that in the text? What I just read you. I wanted you to see this so you know this is in the Bible and not just Ben's wishful thinking. Verse three, Hosea says to Gomer after he buys her off the auction block and they get home. There's probably a little period of silence. And then he kind of silently walks into the room, pulls up a chair and he's like, Gomer. You must. You are going to be with me for many days. Don't play the whore anymore. Don't run around on me anymore. Don't belong to another man. And this is what I'll be like to you. I'll be yours for many days too. Gomer, uh, Hosea, in a sense, puts her on probation. He cuts off some of her liberties and he says, look, you're home now. But for you to sink your roots into this home and then know that you're home and come alive here again, I'm pulling you closer. I'm pulling you in. Hosea sees future Gomer. You're my wife. You're not a prostitute. You're lovely. You're beautiful. You're mine. He sees future her. All of this is a parallel to God and his people. He sees future Israel, future church, future you. Sometimes he pulls up a chair and he says, no, enough with this. Be done with it. Do you see what I see? I am making you into Jesus. Be done with that. That's not you. This is you. We are together. We go through this together. Do you believe this is too good to be true?
Some of you do. You have brains like mine. You're like, what a great fairy tale. Oh, if only this were true, this would be amazing. I could really sink my teeth into this. And there is some sense in which if you're the one sitting in your chair wondering, how can there be a future for me and God? How can he still have anything to do with me? When I keep falling in love with my former captors or these idols, how can he have any love left for me? Part of you probably is hearing accurately what I'm talking about. There is an element of this that is almost unbelievable. Not too good to be true, too good not to be true. But it, it pushes the limits of what's believable. How did this come true? Hosea says towards the end of this chapter, he has a prophecy. Here he puts his prophet hat on and finally he's talking about what will happen. And he says, in that day or afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and his goodness in those latter days. He's looking to the future and he's saying, because of what God is doing, this patient love, this covenantal love, this marriage love, there will come a day when Gomer will not come home because she got caught, will not come home because she got her arm twisted or she got bought back. She will come home because she's looking for her king. She is looking finally for the one she loves and finally the place she calls home. She learned. She learned because of years and years and years of a husband who never left and a door that was never shut and a light that was always left on. In that day, Israel will come to her king. The church will come to her king. We will come to our king who is Jesus. If you want a quick answer of how any of this came true, how is the unthinkable thinkable, the impossible possible, the unbelievable believable? It is all true. In Jesus. There is a sense in which Jesus left the most perfect marriage there has ever or ever will be and set it aside temporarily to step into the worst marriage there has ever been or will be. He left perfect eternal communion with the Father and the Spirit, his beloved, and willingly, in their agreement, came. To this wretched, broken place filled with adulterers like us and promiscuous people and flirtatious people. And he steps into marriage with us. And he trades this marriage for this marriage. And he wrestles with it. Not because he was like, should I do this or not? Not because he was having cold feet about marrying his people. But because of what it would take to marry you. He shook he shuddered, he recoiled, he hesitated. In the garden, he pleads with the Father, is there any other way? Let this cup, this wrath pass from me, not because Jesus is scared of God's wrath. Of course, that was overwhelming to him. But there is also a, a bigger sense in which he is leaving fellowship with the one that he loves Communion with the ones that he loves. He had just talked about and prayed to him in all the chapters before that scene in the garden. And it's all about, Father, may they be one in us like you and I are one and me and the Spirit are one. That is what Jesus was crying drops of blood about. Not because his hands would hurt and he would have trouble getting air. He was leaving the Father. 
In a sense, he was experiencing divorce from the Spirit to marry you so that you might marry the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that marriage might be indestructible and invulnerable to our cheating and our wandering eye. And it is in this marriage that he is putting us back together. And that's the gospel, that Jesus freely comes to give you what he had. And he takes from you what you have. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is good news. It is unbelievable news. And and we shouldn't be surprised by this. You're the one who tell us that apart from your spirit's work, your, your beloved, the spirit, if he does not enable us to grasp this and apprehend this, we will not get it. It is that unbelievable. Make it believable. Say it to our souls. Speak to us. And show us what you have done in marrying us. And for those here tonight who do not know you, I pray that what they would see coming towards them is one who proposes marriage. We ask this in your name. Amen.